Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Don't do that to me. Today, we are joined by Manor Farishta. I tried, right? The founder and the CEO at Care. I didn't even ask you if I was pronouncing Care. it. Care. See? Go ahead. Yeah. Care. You have to roll your tongue a bit. Uh, Care. Care, like that, yeah? Yeah. Got yeah, it. But is this, so I wanted to ask you this before. So your name, I, I really like a lot. And tell me what it means. Does it have a meaning? Yeah. So Manur means moonlight and Farishta means angel. Right. So this, yeah. oh God. I got I lucky with that one. So this is really important to yeah. me. Right? We didn't talk about this a lot before we started to record, but I like to try to not anglicize the names, right? We talked about this. Like I've lived in Asia for 30 years and yeah. a lot of people that come on the show say, oh, just call me, you know, Billy or whatever, even though that's not their name. And my response is always like this, like your parents gave you a name and they thought about it for a long time, probably while, you know, you were a fetus. And then even after you were born, they're like, what do we want to call this kid? So that's why I try to get it right, because it's out of respect for like the whole family. And I love the fact that your name means Moonlight. Yeah. So now why don't you have a go at it? Let's see if you say it correctly. Again, so can I try the company first? Cher. I think that's probably yeah. easier for yeah. me. That, that sort of guttural KH sound is easy. Manor yeah. Farishta. Yeah. Manor Farishta. It's okay. not bad. Yeah, I, I think I got the emphasis. So I'm very happy. Yeah, Manor. So people, Ma and then the Noor. Yeah, Ma, so Ma Noor. goes up and then the word goes, yeah, Manor. So when I lived in England for 10 years, so I'm very anti-anglicizing my name. So every time I met someone, I would be, I would say Manur, and then it would take them a while. And after after a point, I got tired of it. And I said, okay, I don't know if this is worth it anymore. <laughs> it's taking way too long. It's definitely worth so, it. So yeah, but Manur. Yeah, but after a point, if you meet a random person and they keep saying Mano, Mano, and they can't say it correctly, Mano works. Mano is short. Yeah, well, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, if it's a random person, yeah. fair enough. But it's somebody like if it's somebody in your class or somebody that with whom you're working, yeah. like, they should be able yeah. to pronounce your name. If they're calling you from across the room, they should be able to say it. Anyway, can I yeah, get a little bit sure. more of your background for some context? Because as of right now, most people don't even know where you're from. So I am from Pakistan. So I live in Karachi. Nice. In Pakistan. And I was born here. I lived here till I was 16. And then I moved to the UK for 10 years. So I finished school there. I went to university there, I worked there, and then I moved back in 2018 to Pakistan. So I had no intention of actually moving back to Pakistan. I think my parents tricked me a bit. <laughs> they were deciding to move back and they were like, why don't you go live with your grandparents for the summer? I had zero intention to stay. I had a flight booked two months later and I was gonna be back in England. I was gonna go back into working at a tech startup there perhaps. I used to work in Deloitte consulting and advisory. Okay. So then what ended up happening was, so I didn't, I mean, I didn't really enjoy my job there. It was really fun, but I hated the work, especially when we had to do audits and we had to work on advisory work. It was just not for me. Got it. And then I just, I left and then I was in Karachi for the summer, honestly had a few interviews lined up in London and I just basically never went back just happened and then as soon as I moved to Karachi I I moved to Karachi with the intention that okay if I'm staying here then I want to work within impact to some extent because I mean I'd gone abroad I'd come back I wanted to for me it was very much do something that my work seeing it actually uh, substantialize you know or anything or my contribution that creating impact that was really important for me because in Deloitte I was it was a big machine and I was a very tiny particle so if I left it made no difference right so that really was the reason why I decided to stay. Then I, I was here for a couple of months and I started working at a telemedicine company. Okay. 
And that telemedicine company was my first entry or my entry into healthcare in Pakistan. So I have no healthcare background or experience whatsoever. Never in a million years did I expect to be working in healthcare and that also in Pakistan and that also women's healthcare. But it just happened. So I want to ask you this, though. You said you left Pakistan when you were 16 years old. Did you leave with your family? Did you leave on your own? And the other thing is, you said I had no intention of going back, but my parents kind of tricked me. Does that mean they didn't come back with you? They just sent you back and said, go live with grandma and grandpa for a little bit. But did they want you to stay? Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, so I explained that better. So I, I moved with my whole family when I was 16. I'm the eldest, and so I have two younger siblings. So we all moved. My mom was there the whole time. And my dad was back and forth between here and the UK. And then, um, so they did move with me. And then I, they were moving back that year. Okay. And they, that's how they kind of tricked me. So I moved back and then a couple of months later, they moved back. Got it. And they just, I guess it was just one, I always say you tricked me into moving back, but I think it was a, it was a good decision on my part to stay. Can I ask you this, though? Because you, apparently you moved back when you were 20-something years old. I'll give you 26, maybe 27, right? Yeah. What yeah. is it like? Because I moved around a lot as a kid as well. And I'm really curious, right? I moved from state to state. Moving from country to country, particularly from Pakistan to the UK, and then moving back is a very different experience. Yeah. Why didn't you want to come back? Honestly, I just, I never, when I moved to England, I just didn't think I was going to move back, at least in my 20s. I thought maybe when I'm slightly older, that possibility was there, but I was very happy living in the UK. And honestly, when like COVID happened, but I had every intention of going back. All right. It's just COVID happened. Every step in my career, just guiding me or just like led me here somehow or the other, you know? So I do believe that what's meant to be will be genuinely. But yeah, moving to England was also was a big culture shock. It must have been. Not for me, as in not a culture shock in the sense that I'd never been to England before. I'd been... I've been, I've been traveling to UK for a while. Sure. My dad used to work there and we had, had lots of family there as well. So yeah. that wasn't the issue. The issue was when I moved to the UK, the culture shock was the fact that people were shocked that I spoke well, right. that I knew English. I went to this preppy girls school and I remember my first week in and like this girl asked me, how long have you been here for? So I said, I, I moved like three weeks ago. She said, wow, you learned English so fast and it's so good. <laughs> and I was like, we were colonized by the British for years and years and years. So, I mean, that's in Pakistan and India. Right. English is an official language, even even in Bangladesh, right. across the subcontinent. For them, it was a bigger shock for them. Right. And yeah, for me as well, it was very different school in the UK versus school in Pakistan. University wasn't as much of a shock because there's right. lots of international students. But school was different, yeah. Did it change your perspective at all, like permanently, on what it means to be like a global person? Do you know what I mean? In the sense that... If you're in Pakistan, you're educated in English, you're well-educated, you obviously speak English perfectly, but then you go to a country and they're like, now you live there permanently. So living somewhere and visiting somewhere are two completely different things. And now you experience what it's like to live in a different place, as opposed to either just be a tourist or just go visit your cousins. And then you think, oh, okay, now I've learned something about what it means to be in a place where I'm not familiar or things aren't familiar to me or I'm not familiar to somebody else. Does it change the way you think now? To some extent, yeah. I mean, I always had my, I, I never sounded like them, right? No matter how well I spoke, my accent was very different. So that was one. And the girls to be like, oh, your accent is so cute. In, that, in retrospect, I'm thinking about it. I was like, that's just, that's not like nice. You know, you don't <laughs> think about it when you're young. And they mean it nicely, but yeah. clearly it's not that nice. 
<laughs> my accent doesn't need to be cute just right. because it's different to yours so that was that was different i don't think it's fair for, to call myself a global person i've lived in pakistan and i've lived in london fair enough other than that i haven't lived anywhere else i would understand it even a couple of different countries yep then I would have a better global perspective from that thing. Yeah, but it does change you. So I think where, like, I remember when I moved to London. So within um, first year of school, first couple of months in, I was the only international Pakistani girl who had come to that school for a long time, international student. And I joined in sixth form. So that was different because I had been to school with the same people my whole life. So when I moved right. to England and that was the shock, I was much older. So I became friends with a lot of people, but it was very cliquey. Everyone had their own groups and everyone was very nice and welcoming, no doubt. But I never, like I'm in touch with a few of the girls I went to school with, but they never became my core group of friends. I always had friends at home, so I never felt that need. You know, like, and I would come back to visit my grandparents, come back and forth. So I was, it was two years that it was an interesting experience, no doubt. It's a very, now in retrospect, I think about it, it could have helped shape me into who I am today, yeah, for sure. It was so. a very competitive, very, very competitive, very strong female opinions, girls' school. It's the first time I've been to girls' school in my entire life. And it was, um, and I enjoyed it. So that was the first experience that I had actually speaking in public. In school in Pakistan, I was never one that participated in debates or MUN or anything like that. I always spoke a lot. But I never, I guess, to good use, right? <laughs> but then when I moved to the UK, I was the token Pakistani girl who, and I had written, written in one of my applications about the charity work I did, a few communities outside Karachi. So then I was called by the headmistress to come and do uh, assembly and talk about my country. And that was, I don't know how to process that today and how I would have. This is about... This is when I was 16, so it's about 14, 15, 14 years ago now. Right. But in retrospect, that was my first experience speaking out. And I had no idea what I had in store for me. Yeah. I just walked into the assembly and that was, it was the entire school. And I was three, four weeks in, just moved to the UK, had this like cute accent that, yeah. So it was quite a, that was like, I was just, it was a big shock, but it went well. And I feel like that did shape my journey and or oh, more vocal about certain elements and I want to talk about this and I want to talk about this that was I guess one of my earlier moments of public speaking yeah. yeah I don't think you can get away from that and look we talked about this before we started recording right like that is deeply embedded in who you are because this idea of as a 16 year old yeah. or a 7 year old forced into a situation that was uncomfortable and you came through it and now you're like okay well that was seemed like it was going to be a lot harder than it was right yeah but it, yeah, also it wasn't that hard no and it wasn't that hard it never is right but I'm curious why because you said earlier, right, like I wanted to do something that had impact. And I don't feel like this is the first time you've had this thought, particularly if you were going outside of your hometown and participating in charity style events. Where does that come from? This idea of I want to help people. My parents. Tell me. Especially my dad. So my dad and I do a lot of this together since, we, since I was really young. So he's always been very, I have to create an impact. Whatever I have, I have to give some of it away. My parents have a lot of faith and they're religious. So for them, it's very much the more you give, the more you will get also. And the more it's like our duty and obligation as human beings to give back to our, not even our community, the community at large. Got it. So that very much comes from my parents from a very young age. And school, we used to work on, um, there's a couple of foundations we were working on in school. And then when I went to the UK, I didn't get to do a lot of that. Right. You know, um, one really interesting experience for me was so in Pakistan, when you grow up and you would definitely should definitely visit it's you see poverty everywhere. Okay. Right? 
no matter how privileged I am as a being in, and then we're a very small percentage of people who are educated, like, you know, international schools, you go abroad, you come back, it's very tiny and percentage of people that you see and you come across from Pakistan. We're a population of 220 million people. So I have always one known and acknowledged my privilege. And when I was younger, I had a lot of privilege guilt. Okay. And that really was something that also dr- drove me to, I guess, have that. And my dad also has this. He's always said that, you know, we always say Allah has given us so much, so we have to give back. That's our duty and responsibility. So I think that was something that came from home. And then when I moved back, when I, when I said impact, working in impact, when I moved back, I always thought, when I was younger, I always thought, okay, I'm going to grow up and run an NGO. Right. And I'm going to like have an NGO for children, and I'm going to have an education for children and street children. And I always had these thoughts that this is what I wanted to achieve. You know, at some point, maybe not in my 20s, but when I'm older in fact. And I moved back to Pakistan and I always had this at some point I'll move back and I'll pay my fair dues and then when we when I went to uni that was also very instrumental in my growth because I was supposed to not end up at the university I ended up at and then I started studying economics and economic development in the Middle East and South Asia and that really shaped my journey on from the development perspective right. right like I wanted to work in the development field for a long time but that shaped my perspective and then I started realizing well NGOs and that's obsolete we have to work towards sustainable business models so that's kind of starting from the UK ended up at in uni in London and then yeah moved back to Pakistan and here I am before we dig into here and I'm gonna keep trying to pronounce it properly and if I get it wrong please feel free yeah, to like good. aggressively no, correct good, me it's a good effort <laughs> I can't I can't correct you because I myself when I started the company I kept saying khair, khair. like I had just moved back a couple of, like a year in right. I kept saying care care and everyone thought it was called care right okay and then I had to really make the effort to go khair, khair, khair. like that's how I pronounce in practice <laughs> can I ask you this though so yeah is it a bit of a play on words yeah so it's so my the com- my company is incorporated as health care private limited so it's like healthcare. I got yeah. it and then khair in Urdu, khair is, well, not even Urdu, Urdu, Arabic, it's a very commonly used word, right? It, it can mean wellness to some extent, but right. it's also colloquially used. So for example, khair, you say khair, khair, like it's okay. Or I'll tell my, you, Michael, I forgot my AirPods before the, whatever, this recording, recording and yeah. you'll say khair, like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, right. it doesn't matter. You know, it's very, very commonly used across it. Pakistan. Yeah, so for me, I wanted to really, when I was, Trying to find a name for hair, hair. I went through like lists and lists of names, and everything was taken. And then I came across hair, and it's so easily used. It's so easy to like play on words with it. It's easy to use from a marketing perspective. So I loved it, and I said, okay, I'm. This is the name that I'm using moving forward. And I wanted it to be short, sweet, nothing too complicated. Yeah. So yeah. And probably easy to buy the URL as well. Before we dig deeper into that, yeah. I'm very curious about just like the status of the healthcare. <laughs> I'm now I'm struggling to pronounce my own language. This the status of the healthcare system in Pakistan. Like when you step back and look at it, what does it look like to you? And then where do you fit in, if that makes sense? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. Uh, so the status of the healthcare system in Pakistan, I don't know how to explain this. It's horrible. Okay. <laughs> it's horrible. Uh, we are, the government spent, if I'm not mistaken, less than 3% of revenue of GDP on healthcare for a population of 220 million people. Okay. Um, healthcare is, so it's private healthcare yep. predominantly. And then there is public healthcare, which is 
highly oversubscribed. So um, there are public hospitals, there are charity hospitals, but there isn't enough supply for the population that we have. Now, when it comes to private healthcare, another problem is healthcare is, and it's very sad in this country, but if you're rich, you can receive medical assistance, healthcare quite easily. But if you're not rich, people in this country die every day because one, they can't access our healthcare facilities and two, they can't afford when they do access them and then the hospitals, they can't afford them. Got it. Pakistan is one of the lowest rates of insurance in the world as well. So it's That's not like we're covering. Yeah, we're not covering anybody. It's like it's less than one, it's one or two percent if that. And it's usually corporate health insurance. Yep. So if you have a corporate job, if you're if you're a salaried employee, you'll have insurance. And that's also a very few, very small percentage. Got it. So the healthcare system in Pakistan is really, really sad. And preventive healthcare, which is another problem. So one, there is your tertiary care. So there's your facilities of hospitals and labs and tertiary from the from the IPD side, right? So when you need treatment, that is very, very, you know what IPD is? No. So basically your OPD would be your primary care. If you go to a GP or you go to someone for a gynecologist and you speak to a doctor like a consultant so that's your primary care level mm-hmm. now if you're admitted to a hospital then that would be that would come under ipd sorry so insurance so outpatient or versus inpatient care yeah yes Got yeah it. I, I should have ex- I, yeah that would make sense <laughs> okay outpatient versus inpatient the difference is from an insurance perspective you're only covered for inpatient care right yeah, yeah. so any testing related to inpatient care so what ends up happening is even if you are insured, which is very, very few people in this country, that's only when you're hospitalized. Most people in this country can't afford the outpatient care. One's expensive. Right. There's no cover for it either. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so that's one of your biggest issues. Yeah. Okay. So how do you build this company, right, that's focused on female care inside of a system where, like, the basics aren't there yet? Do you know what I mean? Because it almost feels like you've got to build sort of the base infrastructure first and then plug the female care into it, if I understand. That's why I want to know what the overall care was like. Because if the overall care was killer, like if it was just so good, well, then you can just plug into an existing thing. But it feels like you have to yeah. build this from the, from the beginning. Is that right? Yeah, 100%. So that's exactly what I was trying to do. So since last year, I've been working on a d- digital health infrastructure model. Okay. So what that means, it's exactly what you said. To be able to create impact within healthcare in Pakistan, you have to first fix the problem from the ground up, right? right. So when I when I say ground up, I literally mean in Pakistan, the continuity of care rate is only 15%. What does that mean? Follow-up consultation. Uh, follow so that care. means that like a follow-up consultation, or if you go to one doctor, your entire care journey until you're home and you're fine, that's 15%. So people will go to a doctor, they'll go on antibiotics and they'll feel better. So there's no continue. They're never going to go back again. So we oh. have insane antibiotic resistance in the country. And that's a problem with most emerging markets, right? Fair Big enough. problem. In their logic, you also think of affordability. Going back to a doctor is going to cost you. Right. Right. So you might as well take the medicine. You're feeling better and you're fine. But at, in a couple of years, it's that has a lot of impact on your yeah. healthcare, right? Yeah. Exactly. So you're 100% right in Pakistan. So first, I acknowledge the main problem in Pakistan, which was when I say continuity of care is 15%, it's because there is no digital health infrastructure in Pakistan. We do not have a centralized electronic medical record system. We don't even have centralized health data or a cancer registry. So what ends up happening is, and a lot of the time, like when me and my team had to conduct research on healthcare in Pakistan, specifically women's healthcare, yep. we didn't have much to base it on. We had to, we had to actually calculate a lot of rates that we had to go find different elements of what we could find and calculate them ourselves because 
we are benchmarked to Indian healthcare data. Pakistan doesn't have any. So imagine we are the fifth largest population in the world of 220 million people, yeah. and there is no health data. It's insane. It's insane to me. It doesn't make any sense. And then when you go to, let's say you have a couple of hospitals that are large hospital systems, they have digitalization to some extent, yeah. right? Majority of them don't. I'm talking about the biggest and the largest hospital networks. They have data within their own infrastructure that's centralized, right? So if I go to the same hospital and the same clinic, I can probably have more continued of care because I'm using the same system. Right. But if I go to another system or another hospital, I don't have any transferability of data. So a doctor has to actually ask me all over again what my health record is, what my background is. And same thing on, on the other side, from the tertiary lab perspective, I don't have any data. So I don't know what happened to me three years ago and what's happening to me today. It's really shocking. So that's a big problem, data in Pakistan and this lack of visualization. So now if I go to a normal clinic, even if I go to fancy clinics, now it shocks me when I go to fancy hospitals and the OPDs are not digitalized. Everything is on paper. Even the receipt that they give you, that the prescription is on paper. It's so if I'm a, it's written and it's on paper. So for example, if I lose that prescription, I don't have, if I go the next time, I don't have any prescription to like show my next doctor. And the problem in Pakistan is we are very, we're not like a educated tech savvy population. Education rates are still very low. So people who are actually going to doctors, it's very likely for them to one, not understand what they're giving from a prescription perspective, what they're taking, what the dosages are. And two, very likely that they lose. Our housekeeper came to us like two years ago and she got robbed and all their health data, oh, all of their, I mean, from the, everything was, for me, she was telling us about the money and the yeah, ID cards and stuff. And I kept thinking she's chronically, she's, she's diabetic. Her husband has blood pressure issues. Their life's worth of data is just gone, right? right. And that what shocks me. Yeah. So that's, you're right, to build health or build on healthcare in Pakistan, you start off with digitalizing, digitalizing healthcare. So that is what I was doing. And then the market turned. What does that mean, the market so, turned? That means we're in a global recession right now. So Okay, that's so I just want to make sure that is, I understand. Yeah. 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 So what that means is, so last year, Pakistan, in the last, from 2020 and 2021 specifically, Pakistan had the highest amount of money for startups ever. If I'm not mistaken, it was about $300 million and it was exponential for Pakistan. Yeah. Pakistan startups are booming. A year and a half of growth. People, it's like the world woke up and realized that this is a country that's untapped and completely untapped. We have 64% youth population, fifth largest population in the world, and 189 million 3G, 4G, like phone subscribers and 3G, 4G subscribers. Yeah. So very, very high opportunity, right? People started discovering the opportunity. And Do you think it's weird that when the world finally realizes, like, you know, because Pakistan's in the news all the time, it's not like a new country that just came out of nowhere. Yeah. And then they realize, yeah. wait a second, 220 million people, 189 or 190 million subs, and no one's investing any money in here. And if we drop 300 million yeah. bucks, it could turn into $300 billion like overnight in a way. Is it weird being there yeah. when that's happening? It's not really that weird for us because we grew up in an era, where, especially I did. I'm a millennial, right? So I yep. just turned 30 this year. Yep. So for me, we grew up in an era where Pakistan went through the post 9-11. Then you had Afghanistan, turmoil, all of that. Pakistan was in the news always for nothing great. You know, it was always like, this yeah, is happening in enough. Pakistan. This is dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. Then... And we did. When I lived in England, actually, for 10 years, 
during that time, it was very much, like we say, the lost year, especially in Karachi. So Islamabad and Lahore are definitely safer. Karachi is went through political turmoil and it was very unsafe. We felt as citizens, we felt unsafe here. Okay. Then that changed when the military came and the rangers came and they and then the political situation became better, that changed. And Karachi became very different. It's very different Karachi today, right? But it is living through that. We didn't think it was that. Uh, we did realize that at somewhere along the way, our time was going to come. Right. Yeah. So it's just, it's always about, like, countries always associated with the publicity they have in news channels, right? Like, we're 220 million people. That's what you read about Pakistan on CNN or BBC isn't really... Isn't always the case for everybody, right? I so this is the only the reason why I exist is because of that. Because yeah. I don't believe that what we see on CNN or on the BBC is actually a reality at all, and that's why I wanted to do this. Yeah. You know that, right? So anyway, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, no, 100%. And I appreciate it because honestly, you only know if the stories of people, I always say. Exactly. I was the world is all about stories of people, right? Exactly. We live through stories. We share our experiences through stories, your friendships, your relationships. Everything is built around stories and experiences. So it's very refreshing when people want to come and talk to us and talk to Pakistani founders and talk to what's actually happening on the ground. And it was a long time coming, but yes, for sure, in the last year and a half, we also within the star space realized, wow, we're getting recognized for the work we're doing. Right. And also you're looking at, yes, 300 million becoming 300 billion. We are the best shot at that right now because all the other foreign markets that are populations, there's the US, there's China, there's India, all these different pop Indonesia, yep. they're all tapped markets. They're all, yeah. Pakistan is at least 50, I say we are 15 or 20 years behind Indian health tech or Indian fintech or any of that. We are, it was booming today, you know, it's also a global opportunity and we were really appreciating the fact that we were recognized finally. Okay. You know, it's about time. <laughs> yeah and then it's about time and yeah. then yeah it is about and then what happens so then i was working on this digital health infrastructure play yep. and the market turned so when i actually started decided okay i'm gonna raise up till now within two weeks it was like boom not only is global recession startup money is drying out and people had warned me but i'm also a hardcore perfectionist so i was yeah. not happy with I was still working on the product and I said, I'm not going to launch and I'm not going to raise capital until I'm satisfied with what I'm doing. Right. Right. And until it makes sense to me. So then I did. And then the market turned and I was trying to raise capital with my digital health infrastructure model. And a lot of people said, you're right. You hit the right problem set in Pakistan, which yep. stems from, like you said, the ground up. If we start creating digital, if we start digitizing our clinics and we start digitalizing our processes, we get a lot of data, there's continuity of care, and people can actually have, if patients can have access to their own data, it empowers them. You know what's wrong with you, you know your health issues and concerns, yeah. you, then data analysis is a whole other world for us. You know, it'd be great. But it was a very volume-focused, critical mass model requiring a lot of funding. Yeah. And it wasn't the market for it. And then, then I went back to the drawing board, and that was actually very useful for me because I had, and I have had help from, a couple, I have a couple of advisors, I have a good team. I have this very small team, but everyone's very into it and very focused and very, let's do something different. Yeah. So I spoke to my team, we went back and forth and we realized, okay, this is not working. Somewhere along the way. And also no one is willing to invest right now. And then one of the best things that I actually, actually have been reading about and hearing is that a lot of people said this to me, that the best businesses are made 
like are come out of like you know economic downturn always. a really difficult market always because always. you're so much smarter in the way you build right in other words if i gave you 25 million bucks today you'd build a terrible business because you'd have too many resources yeah you just would but if i yeah. gave you a million that, you could probably build something great that 100 that 100 that's exactly what's happening in pakistan last year in pakistan last year the market was booming people are getting like i should make jokes like every other person is raising capital left right and center and then lot of those companies came crashing down yep. i always say this but women female entrepreneurs i hate saying female entrepreneurs but in this case i'll say it i always say that about female entrepreneurs they're very we're very frugal and we have a lot to prove not only to everybody else but to ourselves as well yeah so if you give me a million dollars i don't want three million that's scary for me to have to deploy that much money into these many resources right away i want that million and use that very efficient right and that's what happened and because the market turn and i wasn't getting everyone said great idea the digital health infrastructure we can back it but we need at least 6 to 8 months to a year like not today it's too much you know and the economics don't make as much sense it's a very long term it's a long game yeah and in the so infrastructure game is a super what? long game sorry go ahead Super long game. Yeah. No, no, you super long game. And then uh, talking to more people in the industry and the market, I started to realize that okay, one actually one advisor of mine, he said this to me. I like loved it how he said it. He said, look, he was following my journey for a while, and I pitched him the digital infrastructure, and he was right. He said this is the model that you have to focus on. But then two three months later, I wasn't getting traction for it. He said, look, but now it's time that startups you have to move fast. If something's not working, you have to find the next thing. quickly efficiently and a lot of the and the money that i had put into hair was mine so what really made a big difference was like basically on my life savings and then a loan from my parents right so what really happened was that i'm running out of cash what do i do <laughs> so what he said to me junaid what he said to me he said well you know your and he was like have you read the alchemist and i said yeah and he said you know you're sitting on gold which you've gone across the whole world to find it and i said really and he said yeah and sometimes when you're in it you don't see yeah. he said for the last 2 years because i had no money what i did 2 years ago was when covid happened i started this project called corona ration project and what we did was as soon as covid happened the pakistan government announced lockdowns okay and the lockdowns impacted your daily wage workers predominantly right so those are all your factories they earn a daily wage they're not salaried suddenly their work is gone they've lost all their money Right. My housekeeper came up to us and said, "You, you know that people keep telling us to buy ration in bulk, but we don't have enough savings to buy ration in bulk." And that really hit me. And I was sitting at home in COVID and lockdown and nothing to do, so I started Corona Ration Project, and it went viral. And what I did was I put a post on. I wrote my story of Hafiza. She told me, "You know this is happening, and I need ration." And I just wrote this on Facebook and Instagram, and I said, "Look, I made a page." that i am collecting ration donations for those people who do not have access to savings because we take it for granted you and i can go and for buy three weeks or four weeks of food stock but people live day to day live yeah. quite literally in this country day to day yeah so we day to day and then it was wild and i used that i used that word because it was i raised over 500,000 dollars wow. in Pakistan in 2 months not even my first week i raised 100,000 dollars and then people from across the world started sending me money and what i started doing was and then i realized the impact of that and that really was also very shaped me and my journey in being um, you know individual founder yeah. it took me a long time to come to own it because in the last year year and a half a lot of people told me you're too risky to invest in alone you're single pakistani girl might get married 
and I don't want to offend you. Wow. I don't want to offend you. And th- yeah, but it was honest feedback. They said, but every investor looks at risks, right? That's why they look at co-founders. They yeah. look at yeah. de-risking themselves. And I did. I really tried to go and find myself a co-founder. And to some extent, it worked. And then it didn't work. I was back to being me. And now, almost two years later, two and a half years later, I've owned it. That this is, if I could do Corona Russian alone, then that I gave me that this. confidence to now run this alone. Yeah. yeah. And it always, it's always a journey you end up with, right? Like you always, you have to go through that journey and the experiences and the battle scars and all of it to end up where you are today. So Corona Russian, with that, what I was telling you is, that and also I can I definitely go on tangents. So you can bring me back to where you want. But with Corona Ration, what happened was I when we started doing ration work, I started providing all of those communities, specifically women, with health information on COVID, like how to and but also for women's healthcare. So awareness, right? Do you see the way this works though? Can I just go back a little bit? Do you mind? Yes. Yes, please do. No, because he's, I love this story, right? Because, you know, you said before you moved to the UK as a 16-year-old, you were involved in all these charity things, right? You just went outside and helped people. Yeah. Part, as part of your upbringing, your parents imbued you with this idea of, like, you have to give back. And you said you had this, what was the word you used? Like, entitlement guilt? I can't remember the exact word. Privilege guilt. Excuse privilege. me, privilege guilt. Privilege. That's why I, I couldn't think of the word. Yeah. And that this is something that's like a really, it's like an endemic part of you. And... Yeah. Even while it you is. were getting all this, I'll call it negative feedback, but feedback around like, well, these are your words, not mine, right? Like, you're a Pakistani girl, you could get married, all this feedback. And again, it's honest feedback. It's not great feedback, but it's honest. You're still mm. thinking, how can I help? And mm. then as you get out into the community and raise this money, 100000 at first, 500000 in total, you're still thinking, in a way, it's almost like I'm here anyway. Here's the money for the ration, but how about this other stuff that you need to care about? Because in the back of yeah. your head, you know your housekeeper's thinking, and I love this idea too, like I've lost all of my ID and I've lost all this stuff and all you're thinking of is, yeah, but like you have diabetes and you know what, if you can't explain this to the doctor, it's a bigger problem than not having money. Right? People always think about like, if I lose my banking, like if I lose my banking records, that's fatal because I don't know how much money I have. But in the same sense, like if I lose my medical records, that's in a way more important because now I don't have any of my health info and no one knows what to do with me. But you're always thinking about this. I don't know. In a way, I think that's kind of cool. I also didn't. That's when Janine said to me that you're sitting on gold and you haven't acknowledged it or you haven't seen it. That was quite a realization for me. And yeah. I really went back and realized okay, that this is my, what I'm really passionate about is health awareness. Yeah. Because I genuinely believe that awareness is the first step in a country where we say health literacy is so low. And what health literacy really is in Pakistan where there's lack of literacy. Right? There's a lot that women is, I think it's about 45, I should, I should really know this, but 50%, let's say, literacy in females in Pakistan, it's less than that. All of these metrics make it very difficult for people to know what's happening to them. And this is my housekeeper. That's just one story. Yeah. There's so many. When I was younger, my housekeeper, she was diabetic. We didn't know for a long time it was that bad. Suddenly one day she just died. The same thing happened to me two years ago, which was probably once more than I was very young then. And we used to call her Bua. Then two years ago, my driver, I was, I remember I was in Islamabad. I was on a flight back. So I called him for work and I said, Kadir Bhai, his name is Kadir Bhai. I said, I'm going to come reach at this time. Can you please pick me up from the airport? And he was my friend. Like, you know, my driver is like, that's why I brought up. He was my friend for years. Like everywhere I went, he was with he me, was there, my yeah. friends, you know, like he was there. And two years ago, and as soon as I landed in Karachi, it's a two hour flight. Someone else picked me up from the airport and I was really, you know, disturbed. Yeah. 
And I was like, what happened? So I called my dad and I said, what happened? And I knew I had a feeling. I was like, I just spoke to him. Something is off. Right. And my dad told me that, you know, he's had, Gardner Rice had a really bad stroke. Okay. Really bad stroke. He was 48 years old. I rushed, we rushed to hospital. The state that I saw him in was probably one of the most difficult things I've ever seen. He became a vegetable. Okay. Like from 48 years old, from one stroke, severely high blood pressure. And severely high pressure. And we did, and the thing is, he had been to a doctor recently. It's just, I think he was, like he, and two, three weeks before that, he had told my dad that someone, he needed to pay off his rent, like he had some debts. Yeah, yeah. And he was very stressed about them. So my dad paid that off. And he said, why, well, you don't just let me know and it's fine. And don't take that stress. He had a lot going on. I mean, never know what's happening in someone's life. That's the scary, that's the sad part. Yep. And sometimes I'm like, maybe I should have asked him more. Maybe I should have known more. But, and Michael, within a week, the doctors had called it. They said, this is, he cannot go back to healthy, functioning human being. Right. They insisted on, they recommended no surgery, but his family members really wanted them, him to go through surgery for one last hope. So that also happened. There was no, the doctors had called it. And then we sent him after like a week or two of recovery, we, was, we sent him to his village with his family. And as soon as he got to his village, the next day he passed away. I'm sorry. And yeah, and it was a shock. Like, it was shocking to me. It, he was 48 years old. He had blood pressure. Now, in this country, in Pakistan, four of the top six reasons for death are from, from preventable diseases. That is sad. It is sad that one in 28 babies in this country die in their first month of birth. And maternal mortality is crazy high. That's the problem. If, for me, it was the awareness and it was preventative medicine, that preventive medicine that really made a difference is because if people know from a young age, these are the problems that I have, right? genuinely, they can start, you can, you don't have to be rushed to a hospital, which is what ends up happening. Right. You can take medication and you can like eat better and you can take your nutrition and vitamins and work on that from a young age. So that is something that was really, Gadabai's um, death really shocked me. I know that a lot of the other elements of health awareness and he also, the, and the thing is with him, it was really sentimental because when I used to do the ration work, he used to come with me. We used to go to communities together and we used to go drop the ration bags. And he was my friend, especially during that. And he was a big support system. So that was a big shock to me. And that really made me, I mean, I was really angry also for a while and yeah. it just thought it was unfair. And that made me realize, okay, then, then, I mean, if he can die 48, if he knew he had blood pressure, he could have lived at 80 and lived a good life. You know, it's that was a real factor for me. And then, yeah, so that was basically the journey from the ration side, then the health awareness for COVID, right. and also women's health awareness was very important for me, so especially the, lower income population. Sorry, so what is the status yeah. of hair right now? I mispronounced it again. I'm trying. Well, no, you didn't. You didn't. You're fine. Uh, so yeah, when I started two years ago, I started during COVID. I started this as a health blog. Technically, we started an Instagram page, a Facebook page. And a page for women, we have a space specifically on Facebook for women to discuss their health problems. Right. So I started this because I didn't have any money. And I was like, okay, during COVID, I need to give some health awareness information out there. And, and you know, people, and we're privileged, we can self-isolate. These people live, a lot of people in Pakistan, there's six, seven, eight people in one room in a tiny house. And multiple generations, yeah. Self-isolate. Multiple generations. You yeah. can't isolate and then... Even self-isolation is a privilege. I did a post about that during COVID. I said, we can sit in our room and say, okay, we're isolating for five days and complain about it. I sit on Netflix all day. This is a privilege. We need to acknowledge that. Right. So in that, so when I started, I started a health log. 
two years I ran it. Women's health information, a year and a half. Women's health information, health awareness. We did sessions in lower income communities, spoke about feminine hygiene and gynecological issues, specifically preventive side. And I started realizing, Michael, how people, women in Pakistan who have had four or five children do not know anything about their anatomy or from a feminine hygiene perspective, any of it shocked me. So we did more information. We did more health awareness. We made more sessions. And then I, this blog was free. And then one day this guy basically said to me, I've been following your journey for a while. And you, every time you talk about women's healthcare, your eyes light up and you're really excited. So do that. And I said, what do you mean? Go ahead. Yeah. And he said, he said, do that. He said, what do you mean? And I said, what do you mean? And I, he said, no, you know, you've been doing all this awareness, et cetera. And you make great content when the Pakistani floods recently happened. Yeah. This is around that time. We basically went viral because we did a post on periods don't stop during calamities. And then we did, there are over 70,000 women in Pakistan giving birth this month. Oh my gosh. Okay. They're displaced. This is just this month. There was, there were millions of pregnant women displaced individuals they don't have access to menstrual hygiene products they don't have access to basic delivery kits so we started working with a couple of organizations and we went viral during that process just our social media pages that gave me more confidence that okay this is something that i'm really passionate about and i can create a lot of impact in this as well and it's a better easier model i don't want to say this but easier model to raise capital on right because i can build a stronger business economically and only if i bring a strong only if i build a strong sustainable business can i actually look at it to grow in the long run so i had to think about it from a broader point of view i always wanted to do women's healthcare, but i always thought i'll do everybody first and then women and i just changed that around i love it i said women in pakistan 58 percent of them do not have a say in their own healthcare decisions because because they they have male family members or in-laws or it's just they're not prioritized Got it. okay women are so that's one big issue then second is when it comes to affordability there's a lot of issues and also in women in pakistan so if you look at the i don't know about abroad i always think about a home in pakistan the woman is like the homemaker right so she cares about the father-in-law and the mother-in-law and the husband and the kids but her own health is never really prioritized Okay, she doesn't have time to focus on her own health care, right? So that was one big issue. Then 44% of women in Pakistan do not have access to menstrual hygiene products. Say that, that was another again? problem. 44%. Okay. I just we wanted people to hear it and make sure they heard it. Go ahead. 44%. We have 80 million women who are of a reproductive age in this country. Right. Okay. 80 million women. So you just do the math. Yeah. Above 30 to 35% of yeah. them do not have access to menstrual hygiene products. Right. This leads to hygiene issues. It leads to UTIs. Around. Issues, yeah. it's, a, it's a whole host of issues, right? Yeah. And lack of awareness. That's one problem. And then in Pakistan, ironically, I don't know if it's ironic, it's just sad, that when girls get their periods, a lot of public schools, they drop out of school. You know, Pakistan has one of the highest dropout rates in the world for girls, right? From secondary school. It's because a lot of them drop out of school as soon as they get their period. Because so that is your, they're more rural population. Because one, they don't have access to menstrual hygiene products. They can't afford them. Got it. They don't have the awareness. So then it's just sit at home now. They're not prioritizing their families from an educational point of view. I understand. Number two, if you go to a public health, so we do a lot of health awareness in public schools. If I went one day, I went to a public school and there was so many girls were not there. 
and I was going them quite often. So I asked the headmistress, I said, why is no one here today? Like, it's like 40% attendance is down. And she said, oh, they have their period. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, yeah, firstly, pheromones. So they all sing, the cycles sing together. And then he said, she said, uh, because girls, a lot of the girls have issues, they either don't can't afford the pads or they don't have access to pads or they think that they're going to have like, you know, like, leakages and like their fear of like all of these issues yeah embarrassed and shame so they just they miss school for a week imagine every week if you miss a week of school yeah imagine that impact on a girl's learning and development it's over really yeah it's that's a huge problem so when i started working on this model i started realizing that and for fun actually six months ago for fun when i just hired my new developer and we were building this product together and he took up I didn't have no one in tech wanted to work with me. I hadn't raised capital. I just had this like dream that I wanted to do this. So one, my developer, Fahad, he came on board and he said, okay, I really, young 24-year-old guy, back then he was 23. He said, I always wanted to work in healthcare, so I will take a chance and I will join you. Let's do this. Okay. So so as soon as I would make jokes that Fahad knows more about the menstrual cycle than anyone I know. He knows everything. So six months ago, he came on board. And before we had finalized our product, I told him, Fahad, let's build a period and pregnancy tracker for fun. Okay. We'll introduce it later after we digitize clinics, but as a women's health product, but let's build it. When I started this journey and I had a fantastic team, I have two other girls, Dara, who does all of these amazing anime, the graphics you see. And then I have Rimsha, who's my head doctor. And we're all done in-house. We have four people who work really hard and then have a couple of advisors. Okay, so we built all of this in-house. And now what I did was, so we did this process and we started, so digitalizing healthcare wasn't working. So then I came back to the alchemist story. Okay, the, you're sitting on gold. And I got told that, you know, you've been, your voice, you speak about women's healthcare, you post about women's healthcare, you have an audience, you have a following, and you're in an advantage position where what you can do with women's healthcare, not, every, but not a lot of people can do, right? Yeah. A lot of people can't. And that was also because I've been doing it for a couple of years, but I never acknowledged and recognized what I was doing. I was just like, okay, for fun, I'm providing health awareness. I didn't think I could ever monetize off it or make it something that I really wanted to do. Or maybe I knew I was could do that, but I didn't have that confidence in myself to do what I actually wanted. You know, sometimes you're scared to do what you really want to do. And then, yeah, and then honestly, something just clicked when he said that to me. And then I spoke to my uh, two other guys I work with and they said, this is because you're in it. You don't see it, but he's right. It's what you really care about the most. And you can use, so what we did is we said, so I told Fahad and Zara Rimsha and I said, okay, we have three months. We've built the building blocks for the infrastructure. We've built the peer tracker building block, building blocks of it. We've built now let's all of the content, all the awareness, everything we do, let's make it into an application and do it for women. So that means not just your health awareness, you get your basic health preventive health awareness, but you also track your period and pregnancy. In Pakistan, people do not know what ovulation is. So there's unwanted pregnancies, there's no contraception is an issue. I see you nodding your head. It's, I, I appreciate that because every time, when I used to learn more about women's healthcare, I used to be so 
that. I want to tell these stories. I want people to hear about this, right? Because we take for granted the information that we've received in our lives basically through osmosis without even asking for it. So we just presume, in a lot of cases, I call it the fallacy of now, right? In other words, we believe that it's always been this way, so that it's always going to be that way for everybody. Mm. And yet, because yeah. we're not in touch with this, this is the reason why I like to tell these stories, right? Because there needs to be an understanding around, like this idea of having an unwanted pregnancy because you don't understand an ovulation cycle or the menstruation cycle mm. is anathema to most people. And yet it's a reality yeah. every day. And that's why I want to tell this story around hair, right? Because it's just the beginning to me of what's a much larger story. Is that fair? Oh yeah, 100%. It's a much larger story. This is just the tip of the iceberg. So now when we talk about ovulation, your period cycle, information, now this is not just, and I want to say this very, very clearly, this is not a problem that was just an issue in lower and middle income populations. Yeah. Middle income, upper middle income, educated women in Pakistan do not track their cycle. Okay, they do not visit a gynecologist. We did a survey in Pakistan and I lived in England. So when I moved, I remember when I, if I, I got told you have to get a pap smear done and the NHS is awesome, yeah. you know, we love it. But now when I moved back and I spoke to my friends, okay, the survey within I, what I call the social media population. So girls like me, sure. over 60% of them had never visited a gynecologist in their lives. Okay, because one, there is an affordability issue, but this is not, this is not a population that can't afford it. There's a lot of shame associated. If you go to a gynecologist, they'll be like, oh, it's very, oh, if you only go to a gynecologist after you get married. So there's these like stigmas and shame associated women's healthcare that are so deeply embedded that problems like PCOS or endometriosis will never come about because we just don't talk about them. Right. Pakistan has one in 10 women in Pakistan are diagnosed with PCOS. And I always say, I did a post recently on LinkedIn about this. I said, since when you're young, you get told, we say bardasht karo, which is kind of like suffer in silent or deal with it. Yep. Women get told, your ancestors, your, they'll all tell you this, but deal with the period pain, excessive, excessive. I personally had a crazy period pain as a, as a young adult. Right. I had to miss a day of school. I used to faint. It was really bad. Yep. Only to find out that I had, me and my sister, and my sister also had PCOS, but she had a completely different set of symptoms. Right. And we were never we didn't realize until much later that it's not normal to have excessive period pain or like, you know, hormonal acne and like none of these things are normal. They can be treated. But and I'm an educated Pakistani privileged girl. So imagine everybody else. And that's what shocks me. And when it comes to ovulation, girls get married very young. OK, they get married very young. They're not very educated. They don't know about understand ovulation. They have multiple pregnancies many of whom then babies die. Like I said, one in 28 babies die in their first month. Yeah. And most maternal deaths in Pakistan are due to direct childbirth complications. Yeah. So it's not like it's like a, it's not like it's, it's the problem. It's just way worse than we can, I can even express to you. It's way worse than I can even understand on my own. That's the difference. So when it came to hair, for me, it was like, okay, Women deserve a platform that is an all-in-one solution to women's healthcare. And in a population with 80 million reproductive women, we have over 40 to 50 million women who are smartphone users, active. You bring that down to even if you bring down to 20 to 30 million women, active smartphone users, that's a huge population chunk. Right. Okay, that is bigger than a lot of countries, right? In Pakistan, when we say 
when in Pakistan, when 30 million people were displaced due to the flood this time, we had to explain to people globally, this is bigger than most European countries. It's a large population, 20, 30 million people. So my focus was really with Khair was the app that we're launching. It should be in English. It should be in Urdu. It should be in Roman Urdu, which is the three languages we launch with. Yep. But the more capital I get, I want it to be in all regional languages. And you have community support where you can speak to women about your health issues. We are launching Pakistan's first period and pregnancy tracker and with subscription-based menstrual hygiene products. That Does is that the, make sense? Yeah, but also that's the perfect way to end. I want to thank you, Manur Farishta, the founder and the CEO of Khair. Thank you so much for doing this. And you have to promise me, you have to come back as this continues to develop please oh yeah yeah 100 yeah, percent. and we also just launched i want to highlight another feature that i really like please. about it so one is the period pregnancy tracker menstrual hygiene products because the reason why i say menstrual hygiene products is important is not only because of awareness i just want to go over the best part about this so it's not just awareness one is there's a lot of shame associated with buying menstrual hygiene products for women mm -hmm. a lot of them depend on their husbands and their brothers etc to do so but we have partnered with enough organizations to provide a care package. So it's a care package. And it's not just your, it's not just your pads or it's not just your menstrual hygiene products. We have pimple patches for hormone acne. We have your medicine. It's a cotton underwear, anything you need for a care in your period. So like a wellness in your period. But also for every two packets of pads you buy from care, we donate two packets to girls from lower income backgrounds who cannot afford menstrual hygiene products and miss school or work as a result. So the idea is that period poverty in Pakistan is a huge problem. And we want to we want it to be a sustainable way to help both populations there. So yeah, and then with every hair package, you get one free call with one of our hair GPs. And then then comes by digitalizing healthcare infrastructure is because simultaneously as we grow, we give you access to gynecologists, pediatrics, any of the doctors that you need for your health concerns, all on one application. And then we have for October, we did a really fun, uh, it's a feature, it's called the breast cancer self scan. So it's an eight step process on how to check yourself every month and you get a monthly reminder. So every month you should check yourself, check your breasts because early detection of breast cancer saves lives. And Pakistan has the highest rate of breast cancer in Asia. So it's another problem that we have, one in nine women. So yeah, that's hair in a nutshell. But as we grow, I'd definitely love to come back, tell you more about what happened, what we're doing. And yeah, all-in-one solution to women's healthcare. Definitely follow hair.pk on social media. And um, thank you so much, Michael. This was great.